Hey, summer is here. We're already preparing for the picnic next Sunday. It's going to be 75 degrees. They say showers will be moving out early, so looking forward to that. Just know you can come to church in relaxed, you know, picnic wear. It's going to be just fine, and, and you can head straight over there from here. So this morning, we are going to begin a new series, as Dan mentioned, and it's our practice to teach through the Bible uh, a book at a time. We, we will periodically do topical series too, but most of the time we're teaching through a book and we try to balance Old Testament, New Testament, and having just finished 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we're going back to the Old Testament and our series will be on the book of Esther. And so the title for it will be On Purpose. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But Esther's one of my favorite books. I've heard from a number of people that it's their favorite or one of their favorites as well. But before we jump into it, I want to take just a minute or two to kind of set up what we're going to encounter in this series. So if you know me well at all, you probably know that one of the things I enjoy doing is flying. It's, it's been ever since I was a little boy. My dad taught me to build model airplanes and fly them. And then when I was 14 years old, I started flying the real thing, gliders and, and a few years later, airplanes. And I just always loved flying. And for me, there's almost a magical quality to it, if you want to call it that. It just seems to defy the laws of physics. It's something so heavy, heavier than air, can rise off the ground and into the sky. And it, it's just amazing. And every time I go flying, I get to experience this magic. And all you have to do is line a plane up at the runway and get going to a certain speed and barely touch the controls and it just magically floats into the air. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It never gets old for me. I'm thinking I'm going to start a new group, the Riverside Flyers. Anybody in? Yeah, okay. Let's go. We'll, we'll get the rest of you hooked on it. Well, flying's amazing too because it lets you see things from different perspectives. Things that you wouldn't see from the ground. I mean, yeah, you can see mountains and rivers and lakes and all of that, but it just gives a whole new perspective on it. So here is a picture that we took recently. We were returning from Baraboo where we were visiting our kids up there, and it was sunset, and we were just skimming the tops of the clouds as the sun was setting. And it's one thing to see and appreciate a beautiful sunset from the ground. It's a whole other thing to interact with it. To like literally get to dance on top of orange colored clouds. It just, every time I'm just in awe of God's creation. And again, it just never seems to get old. But what makes this possible is something that I've never seen with my own eyes. It's an invisible force known as Bernoulli's Principle. And it's named after an 18th century mathematician who discovered it, Daniel Bernoulli. He didn't invent it. God invented it. Bernoulli just figured it out. And his principle explains this invisible low pressure that exists on top of the wing of an aircraft as it moves through the air. And it's this low pressure that magically 
magically lifts the plane into the air. Now, I tried to get a picture of Bernoulli's principle. Can you see it there? You don't see it? it it's right. There it is. It's right there. That is the invisible force that is holding this airplane in the air. And I believe in that. I have faith in that. In fact, I, I stake my life on that. Every time I get in the airplane and go, you know, screaming toward the end of the runway, I'm counting on that Bernoulli principle to be there to lift me over to buildings and into the air. It's not crazy to have faith in something you cannot see. Billy Graham used to famously say, I haven't seen the wind. Have you seen the wind? I've seen the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. Remember how he'd say that? Have you seen God? And then he'd go on and explain the wind and God. You can't see either one of them. But we see the effects of them. And so as we get into the book of Esther, there's something you won't see. You will not, for one, see the name of God in this book. It's not mentioned once in any form. Now that's led some people to say, I don't think the book of Esther should even be in the canon of scripture. God's name isn't even mentioned. But while his name isn't there, you see, you will see him throughout the book. And it's our goal to reveal God working behind the scenes. I almost named the series Behind the Scenes because that's what's going on throughout this. Now, why isn't God's name mentioned? I mean, people have debated the various reasons. Some have said things like, well, he, it was written in the time of exile and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, they had these pagan gods. And so for fear of retribution, they didn't want to mention the name of God. Eh. Well, if that's the case, you better take him out of a lot of other books and accounts like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The Corinthians, got to pull God out of that too because uh, they, these people believed in immoral pagan things. Some have said it's just too immoral of a, of a book for God's name to be there. Again, well, what are you going to do about the other texts that speak about the immorality that was prevalent in the land and, and God's name is right there. There's other books that were written during the exile and his name is throughout those lamentations. His name is all over there. So what was the purpose and, and this wasn't a mistake. The fact that God's name isn't in the book of Esther was not a mistake. God who inspired every word of scripture didn't get to the end and go, oh, I forgot to put my name in there. No, he did it on purpose. It was intentional. So I think the reason that God's name is concealed in the book is really simple and it's really clear. It's a literary tool that underscores the theme of the book which is God working behind the scenes in an unseen way. It's all about God's providence. And so you may or may not be familiar with that term providence. We talked about it before. It's more than just a city in Rhode Island, right? Providence is God working behind the scenes, orchestrating the ordinary things in life to achieve his extraordinary purpose. Now notice, providence is not something miraculous in the sense that it, God's providence doesn't suspend physical laws 
like walking on water or feeding the 5,000. It's not miraculous. Rather, it's God arranging the ordinary, seemingly day-to-day things to achieve his extraordinary purpose. Have you ever been on an airline and you find out that there's this amazing coincidence that just this amazing thing that you share with the person sitting next to you, some connection from your past, whatever it is. Maybe you were born in the same town or your career. And as you begin talking, it opens up the door to sharing the gospel. And it just so happens that this person was in a place in life where their, their heart and their ears were open to hear the gospel. Or maybe they just needed some word of encouragement. And you just happen to be there right beside them at just the right time. And God does this amazing work. I've had that happen a number of times. And it always, it's like, that was awesome. But it wasn't miraculous. See, God didn't like teleport them down into that seat beside me. They went online and they reserved their seat when they bought their ticket just like I did. It was just an ordinary thing. But God behind the scenes was supernatural, not supernaturally, but in a a way, he was orchestrating all of those normal things to achieve his extraordinary purpose and will. So that's what providence is. It's an invisible God working behind the scenes. And he can only do this because he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. So I think it helps to know where this word providence comes from. It comes from two words. The the first one is pro, meaning ahead, and the second one is vider, to see. So in other words, to see ahead. And this is speaking of God's omniscience. He knows everything, past, present, and future. And so he can see ahead and He's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He has the ability to arrange all of those normal things to accomplish his purpose. And so this can only happen because God is omniscient and he's omnipotent. So I heard about a man who was putting on a, a tin roof and he began to slip down the very steep roof. And as he started sliding, he cried out, God, save me. And about this time, his coveralls got hooked on a nail and he stopped. And he said, oh, never mind, God, I took care of it myself. (laughs) Well, some of the things that we as humans attribute to coincidence is actually God's providence. And when you see it enough, and when your heart or mind are open are opened by the Spirit of God, you know that it's God at work. It's not intelligence, you know, human intelligence, it's not coincidence, it's God's providence. Listen to what Ephesians 1.11 says. It says that he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything. Where you sit on that plane. I like to think about the stoplights that change red, you know, that that change green red. Sometimes I'm frustrated when I get stopped. I almost was going to make it through and it turns red and I'm like, ah, I'm in a hurry. And I get stopped by the light. How do I know that that's not God's timing? That he wants me to avoid something or encounter something else, bringing all things together. So I've just let go of that frustration. And okay, Lord, I'll stop. Here I am. And give it over to the Lord. He's providential. Now, we're going to see this providence throughout 
the book of Esther. And I think we can really, really use this study right now because as we look at the world around us, as we watch the news, we might wonder, where is God in all of this? Because I don't see him. Where is God in our world? Where is God in our country? Where is God in Washington, D.C.? Where is God in St. Charles? Where is God in our school boards? Where is God in my life? Does he, is he present? Does he even care about the things that I'm facing right now? Where is God in all of this? Well, the book of Esther shows us that God is in control. And he's purposefully working behind the scenes. Even when we don't see him, and even when we don't acknowledge him, God is there working. And so we're going to see that. I think it'll be very timely. Now, this is why I chose the title on purpose. Because we're going to see that God has a purpose in everything. He has this purpose in our world. He has this purpose in our city, in our church, and in our personal lives. But we're also going to see that as individuals with volition, with a freedom of will, we have the choice as to whether or not we get on board with God's purpose for us. We're not, if we don't, we're not going to thwart the plan of God. We can oppose the will of God, but we will not thwart the plan of God. His plan, his purpose will prevail with or without us, but we have a choice in that. So with that as our a series introduction, the title for the message this morning is Setting the Stage. And it's Esther chapter 1, there's 22 verses in it, and we'll be looking for two parts. First, the king's pompous demonstration in verses 1 through 8, and then the queen's public deposition in verses 9 through 22. And again, I've just always appreciated this book of Esther. I think it's a lot more enjoyable and easier to read than Numbers or Leviticus, <laughs> for sure, because it tells an engaging story. And it has all the makings of a great romance, novel, or movie. It's got beauty, power, wealth, politics, extravagance. I mean, everything Hollywood would be looking for. And in fact, it was the inspiration for this 2006 movie called One Night with the King. It starred Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole and some others. And I don't know if you're into Christian historical movies. Some people love them. They inspire them. Some people say, eh. But it was a fairly faithful retelling of the, of the account. And it had, again, all of, the, all of the ingredients that you would want in a really engaging story. But while it has all this rich content, it's not a work of fiction. It's an actual historical account. And I just can't emphasize this enough. I, I hesitate even to use the word story. Because story carries the connotation of fiction, doesn't it? It's a Bible story. It wasn't real. No, it was absolutely real. It's, it's, it, this is an historical narrative in the Bible, but it's not history just for history's sake. It's history that shows us God's unfolding plan of redemption for mankind. And so with that, I want to jump into this first section, which is the king's pompous demonstration. We're going to see it in verses 1 through 8. And because this is a longer section of text this morning, we're just going to read it a little piece at a time as we go. 
So the first four verses, let's take a look at those, maybe the first three. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 providences stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the providence were present. Now, although Esther comes right after Nehemiah, it's not in chronological order. The events of Esther occurred right before, about 30 years before Nehemiah, which we studied just last year. So King Xerxes, who's mentioned here, is the father of Artaxerxes, which was the man who gave the permission to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls. Nehemiah worked for Xerxes' son Artaxerxes as a cupbearer. Remember that? So there's a bit of a connection there. Now again, it's an historical narrative and it's really hard to understand an historical narrative without the historical context. And so part of setting the stage this morning, we need to go through some history so that we can just remember, be refreshed on the events leading up to this important point in scripture. So... You won't be able to write fast enough to write this down if you're a note taker. You can take a picture at the end or it's going to be on the, it'll be on the internet under our messages tab by, by the end of lunchtime. So a quick overview. Here we go. The young nation of Israel was only 70 people. Abraham and his family when God, when they moved to Egypt at a time of famine. Remember that? And they were there for 430 years. In that time they grew to over 2 million people but they also became enslaved to the Egyptian rulers. God raised up Moses to deliver them out of Egypt and, and lead them into the promised land. It took 40 years. He brought them into the promised land. And they weren't in that long land very long when they began to adopt the detestable practices of all the pagan nations around them. This included the worship of idols, Sexual immorality, even child sacrifice. Does that kind of sound familiar, the things going on then? Yeah, idols, sexual immorality, even child sacrifice. In a way, it's kind of what we see going on in our world, isn't it? So for several centuries, centuries, God warned them and warned them and warned them through the prophets to repent. And they had moments where they did, but then they go right back to it again. They mostly refused to repent. And so God told them, look, unless you repent, I'm going to take you out of the land. There's going to be an exile. He foretold that they would be stripped from the land and they'd be given over to their enemies to be taken into exile. And so, true to his word, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC and most of the people were taken into exile. Then the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, remember him? He conquered Assyria. And then he conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. And so now, that was a little over 100 years later, 607 BC. And he took the southern kingdom. Daniel and his cohorts and many others were taken into captivity now in Babylon. It was really the perfect consequence for a nation that had embraced pagan idolatry. 
they'd rejected the one true God and now they were going to get to see what it is like to live in a pagan nation under pagan leaders. God was just in doing this. He was absolutely just. But he was also very merciful. And he promised that they would only be there for 70 years. And after that, he would bring them back into the land. He even went so far as to identify the name of the Persian king who would give them permission to return. He said, there's going to be a King Cyrus and a Persian nation rise up. He said that 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Well, guess what happened? The nation of Persia rises to power. One behind. Persia rises to power and a guy named King Cyrus. And he conquers the Babylonians. And then he also conquers the Medes, another nation. And so they become this united empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And it encompassed most of the known world at the time. And then in 538 B.C., Cyrus issues a decree allowing the Jews to return to the land. Now, how could God say and do these things if he didn't have the ability to look ahead and the power to control the outcome? You have these nations and these kings rising and falling, and yet God is in all of this. He's in control, and he's using all of these events for his good purpose. Providere, providence, God looking ahead and orchestrating even the events of kings and nations to achieve his extraordinary purpose. Now before we move on, someone might be thinking, well that's just what the Bible said happened. It can say anything. It can say it's going to happen and it can say it did happen. They're fulfilled. And you might doubt that. But these events aren't just recorded in the Bible. History and archaeology continue to prove them out again and again. Take a look at this really cool piece unearthed in Babylon in 1879. It's dated to the 6th century BC, which is the time of the exile. And it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's written in this cuneiform text. And it records the peaceful conquest of Babylon by Cyrus. And, and it records the call to allow the foreigners to return to their homeland and rebuild the ruins and restore their religious and social lives. And so this Cyrus cylinder independently confirms key portions of the biblical narrative. So if you're here this morning and you wonder, is the Bible real? Is it right? Is it reliable? The answer is it absolutely is. No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical text, ever. So Cyrus allows these exiles to return home and a first wave of 50,000 of the Jews return and rebuild the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel. That's 538 B.C. And then um, a second wave of about 5,000 returns under the leadership of Ezra in 458 B.C. But together this is just a, a small remnant of the nation of Israel. Most of them are still living in Medo-Persia at the time of the account of Esther. Remember the, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem were still torn down and the gates were burned. And that was going to be the work of Nehemiah another 30 years down the road. But it was still a dangerous place to live. So although a remnant had returned, 
most of the Jews are still living in Medo-Persia. And so this is where we pick up the account of, es of Esther. So again, back to verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 providences stretching from India to Cush. And at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, your translation might say that the king's name was Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Well, that's the Hebrew name. Xerxes is the Greek name. And so he rules over these 127 provinces from India to Kush. To give you an idea of just how big this is, take a look at this. Here's the world, and here's some markers. The Indus River on the right is kind of the, the eastern boundary of their territory. And Greece is near the western boundary. You can see Cush there. That was included in their territory. This is a massive territory. It's 3,300 miles across. That's bigger than the continental United States by hundreds of miles. It was very large. And here on the map, you can see India that's mentioned in the lower right. And you can see down in the extreme lower left corner is Cush. And so these, this is the boundary of, of Xerxes' territory. And this little circle right here, that's the nation of Israel. That's their land. It's tiny in comparison. And the, the right there, you can see Susa. Now your text might say Shusha. And again, it's a difference between the Hebrew and the Greek name for the city. But that's Susa. And... This is where Xerxes is at the time of this writing. So 127 provinces rolled up into 20 different regions. And verse 2, it says King Xerxes is reigning from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, does that sound familiar? That's the same thing that we read in Nehemiah. That's the same palace where Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes. So the town of Susa... You saw it on the map. It's almost a thousand miles east of Jerusalem. And it was one of four capital cities for the Persians. And this is where the kings would spend their winter. It was like their winter retreat. It was their Florida. It was here in the town of Susa. So verse 2 speaks of the, the citadel of Susa. Now the citadel was like a, a large palace. A fortress in fact that included a palace. And here's a picture of the ancient ruins of Susa. And it's just outside the modern day city of Shush in Iran. Can you say shush? <laughs> shush. There, you shushed the pastor. <laughs> you shouldn't shush the pastor. It's right outside of Shush. And this picture doesn't do it justice because it's taken from on top of a hill. And so the, the things in the foreground are pretty big, but it makes the, the stuff in the background look larger than it, or look smaller than it really is. It's an enormous complex, over 300 acres. It's like more than half a square mile. It's huge. And many of the ruins have been looted and destroyed by war. Here's some of the pieces that are still scattered around the site. And these things are 2,500 years old. Enormous. Wouldn't it be fun to just climb around on that stuff or go looking? Now, at the bottom right is a broken, in fact, both those are like a piece of a broken capital, the top of a column. 
Well, here's a whole one. This is a complete capital that's set on top of one of the columns of the palace, and it's now in the Louvre in France. And to get an idea of the side, look at the railing down below it there. That's like a, a railing to keep people out of it. It was enormous, and, and that's a huge wooden beam on top of it, which would have been the structure for the palace. So here's an artist's rendition of that palace, the citadel, and, and you can see that capital column there. And there were 36 of these columns standing 70 feet tall. It was enormous, this palace. And then here, back at the site of the ruins, here's the base of one of those columns, and it's almost six feet in diameter. Can you imagine making these things, like chiseling these out of stone? It's one thing to look at a 70-foot column and go, wow, that's beautiful, but imagine, ching, 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 like, <laughs> where do you even start making this? It was an enormous complex, and so this is where Xerxes was reigning. And verse 3 says, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now, notice that all of the military leaders and government officials were at this banquet. And these Persian kings would have banquets like this right before going off to war. And they bring in all of these officials and they would plan the strategy for the battle. So this went on for six months. And it was right after this time in 481 BC that Xerxes invaded Greece. And they believe that this six-month banquet was actually used to prepare for this attack on Greece. Now, here's a, here's a large stone relief that's carved in a stairway in Xerxes' palace in Persepolis. It's another one of the four capitals. And it shows the Median and the Persian dignitaries gathering together. The Medes are in the little round caps and the Persians are in the fluted or feathered caps on there. And so this, this carving supports exactly what the passage is saying, that these Median and Persian dignitaries and leaders gathered together and they're planning this invasion. So again, it went on for a full 180 days, it says in verse 4, and he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth at that time. His, his kingdom was almost the whole known world. But he wasn't displaying the majesty and wealth of the kingdom. It says he was displaying his majesty and wealth. He was a very prideful, you could say, pompous guy. And you know what the Bible says about pride? We just studied it last week, didn't we? In 3 John and diatrophies, and God says pride comes before the fall, right? And a haughty spirit, it says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Well, it was under Xerxes that the great Medo-Persian Empire began to decline. He suffered this humiliating defeat in Greece, 
and that, that attempt drained the treasury. And yet when he came back from that battle, he continued this lavish, reckless spending. And the country was bankrupt. And so he levied extreme taxes on the people to try to pay for all of this. And the nation went into a time of, of economic recession. Is this, does all this sound familiar? <laughs> well, they would eventually, 150 years later, Medo-Persia would be conquered by Alexander the Great. But it was under this proud King Xerxes that they began this steady decline. Their greatest days were behind them. And so verse 5 says, When these days, the 180 days of this banquet were over, the king, or when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So this banquet number two, the first one was six months. This one's only a week. But it's for all of the people working in the palace. And a purpose, again, was to show off his majesty. Now, this enclosed, they call it an enclosed garden. It was within the wall surrounding the palace complex. And archaeologists have dug this up. If we go back to the picture of the ruins, this green area here would be the, the garden area the royal gardens, and that red area is that palace that you saw with the 36 columns, that enormous palace. And again, that's just a small part of the overall citadel, the overall uh, complex. So it says the garden had hangings of white and blue linen in verse 6, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of Porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. There's, I didn't include pictures. I didn't want to overwhelm you with pictures. But there's pictures of this, these mosaics and these colored pavers that were throughout this palace there in Susa. And the description, as I read this, it reminds me of the temple in Jerusalem. It sounds a lot like that, the gold and the ornate work that was there. Only this wasn't for the worship of God. Again, it was for the worship of the Persian kings. It says again in, in verse 4, it said, For the splendor and glory of his majesty, Xerxes. So verse 7, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant. In keeping with the king's liberality, says he was a liberal. I'm <laughs> just keeping with the liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Well, now the party's on, right? They're going on for a week, and they can have as much wine. Nobody was going to tell them, no, you've had too much. They can have whatever they wanted. There was no shortage. Here's another. Oh, here's these goblets. These are golden goblets, each one, you know, sculpted to a different animal. And these are in a museum in Iran, in Tehran. And they come from uh, the citadel area there in Susa. So they're drinking from these things, goblets of gold. And let me see if I got... No, don't have a picture of the... 
Maybe it's coming up and I'm out of order. But they, they have these, these stone reliefs of these guys carrying these wineskins on their shoulders. This is like the skin of an animal that's sewed up where the legs would have been. And they fill them up with wine. You know, wineskins. There was an almost unlimited supply of wine being brought into this banquet. So this lavish excess, this was the benchmark for kings of the time. I mean, this is the most powerful king. And look at, look at what he did. Look at his splendor and his wealth and his power and all of these implements of gold. And Now, here's the Jews looking at all of this, right? When they think about the fact that their king is coming, their Messiah, the king of kings, wouldn't they be thinking, man, if this is just an earthly king, Xerxes, how awesome is it going to be when our king arrives on the scene, right? Well, Jesus didn't come anything like this. He came, how? Riding on a donkey, right? Lowly and riding on a donkey. So it's easy to see how Jesus didn't meet their expectations of a king. And when you look at Xerxes, it's not hard to see all this prideful excesses of his life. But we should also consider our own attitudes when it comes to things like material wealth and extravagance. It's not wrong to be wealthy, but do we value humility and generosity and contentment? Those are the godly qualities, humility, generosity, thankfulness, contentment. Or are we longing for the same things as Xerxes? The recognition, the prestige, the power and influence. Only maybe we just want it on a little smaller scale. A little smaller palace. But we, have to, we should just really examine our heart on that. It's something to consider. So this was the king's pompous demonstration. And I want to look next at the queen's public deposition. And by depose, I don't mean like a, like a legal testimony, but deposed meaning dethroned, removed from power. That's, that's the, the meaning of, of deposition here. So it says in verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So Vashti is Xerxes' wife, and she's hosting a banquet of her own. This is the third banquet now. It's going on concurrently with Xerxes' banquet, only this one's just for the women. This is like the ladies' retreat, I guess. I should, probably shouldn't, shouldn't, you know, overlay those two things, but I did, sorry. Verse 10, on the seventh day when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehumim, Bidztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. To bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at. Well notice first of all Xerxes was intoxicated. He was in high spirits from wine. He was drunk. And he's got all of these nobles and people around him. All of the men there and he decides to parade Queen Vashti in front of them to show off her beauty. Now it doesn't say explicitly in the text, but the text implies that he wanted to display her beauty in an immodest way. 
Now, this whole, kind of this event, when I was reading this, it made me think of another ruler. Remember Herod the Great? Remember how Herod was having a great, uh, a great celebration and he asked the daughter of Herodias to dance for him and his dinner guests? And he promised that if she'd just dance for them, he'd give her anything she wants. Remember what her mom put in her? Ask him for the head of John the Baptist. And that's what happened. Well, alcohol does not lead to good decision making. It doesn't. But what makes it so popular is that it frees people from their moral inhibition. And it gives license to the flesh. But as Christians, we're called to be sober-minded. We see that throughout Scripture. Drunkenness is not to be a part of a Christian experience. Ephesians 5.18 said, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So Xerxes is filled with a different kind of spirit. And in this drunken state, he sends these seven eunuchs to go get Queen Vashti. Now you know what eunuchs were. They were castrated males who served in the king's palace. And because they were castrated, they didn't have the same sex drive. So they could be more readily entrusted with the matters of the king. And especially with the women there in the palace. The queen and the harem. And so he sends them off to go get Vashti. Verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now it doesn't say why she refused, but I don't think it was just being defiant. I really don't. She was probably discerning enough to know better than to go parade around in an immodest way before a bunch of drunk men. And so she said no. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. And then the very next verse says, A king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. He who angers him forfeits his life. Well, Xerxes has both verse 1 and 2 going on. He's drunk and he's raging mad. He's angry. And sadly, Vashti is caught up in this. And it's dangerous. And I, it doesn't seem that Vashti put herself in this situation. She wasn't hanging out at the party. She wasn't looking for trouble. She was doing her own thing when the king summoned her to come. But there are many women today who do voluntarily put themselves in dangerous situations. Situations where there's a lot of alcohol or drugs involved. Situations like bars and parties and spring break and, and the like. I'm not in any way trying to justify the sinful actions of men against them. But a wise woman would stay clear, steer clear of this kind of thing. And it doesn't even have to be an act of aggression. It could just be a, you know alcohol-fueled accident or a drug-induced accident can be dangerous for men and women alike. Just last fall, there was a brother and sister from my neighborhood, and they were picked up by two friends who were going to drive them to a party. And the driver was heavily under the influence of marijuana. He was sent to go get them because the other guy who was going to was too drunk. 
So they sent him. And he picked them up. And just outside our neighborhood, he slammed into the back of a stopped school bus at over 70 miles an hour. The brother and sister were killed immediately. The driver's girlfriend was seriously, seriously injured. They had no business, you know, being in that situation. Wisdom would stay steer clear of that, but it's just become, you know, like recreation in the United States. The overuse of alcohol, underage drinking, now we have recreational drugs. Nothing good is going to come from that. And, and I think young people in particular can easily be drawn into situations like this. A wise person steers clear. They avoid it altogether, if at all possible. And so in all likelihood, Vashti saw the danger, and she steered clear. Verse 13 says, Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke to the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. Now I do, I give Xerxes credit here for following decorum and consulting these advisors. It says they were experts in the law and, and legal matters and they understood the times. These men were probably like the wise men that visited Jesus on his birth, the Magi. And in fact, uh, the Greek historian Herodotus records that Xerxes would consult the Magi before making major decisions. And so these were like Magi, but and they, they're called wise men, but they were wise according to worldly standards. They didn't have godly wisdom. That's what Xerxes needed was godly wisdom. <laughs> we got mail. <laughs> Let me open it up. <laughs> Who do you turn to when you have an important decision to make? Hopefully you have some trusted advisors. But we have to be really careful because there's a lot of worldly wisdom out there. Worldly wisdom is worthless. It can only lead to ruin. What we need is godly wisdom. And so we have to be careful that that's who we're seeking. We need to surround ourselves with godly counselors who will look to the truth of the word of God that will take the principles and apply it to the situation and help us make those decisions. Proverbs says that there's safety in a multitude of counselors. So it's a good thing to have advisors. But... We need godly advisors. So verse 15, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She's not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. 
we, it wasn't wrong to want to reinforce a man's role as a leader in the home. That wasn't wrong. And, and it wasn't wrong to want to reinforce honor in the household. But respect and honor can't be demanded. It's like love. If it's demanded, it's worthless. It's not real. It has to be offered willingly or it's, it isn't worth anything. Now, somebody carelessly reading this passage might say, well, the Bible is endorsing male chauvinism and the objectification of women. It's right here in the scripture. Look what they did. But remember, this is an account of a pagan society. This is a pagan ruler, a godless man. God's model for husbands, for a husband's leadership in the home is very different. It's one of servant leadership where a man lays down his life, putting the needs of his wife before his own. And his model for the wife is one of loving submission. Submission that's motivated by a belief in God and a desire to please the Lord. It's not based on forced compliance. So, besides this, the, the limits of a wife's submission are defined by Scripture. The word of God. If a, if a husband is leading a wife into sin, she's under no requirement to submit to that at all. So despite what the world may want to believe, the Christian ethic does not diminish the status of women. It elevates it, especially when you consider it in comparison to a pagan world. So God's standards are very different. But, verse 19, it says, Therefore... Based on this counsel, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of the king of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Now, the fact that Persian law, the, the law of the order of the king cannot be repealed, that's going to play prominently into the text as we get further into it. It can never be repealed. So the counsel of the wise men is to depose Queen Vashti, to take away her crown, her royal position, and give it to someone else who would be better. Well, I think if they were really wise, maybe they should look for a king better than Xerxes, right? But this is their counsel. And so verse 20 says, when, Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from least to the greatest. There, fixed it. See? To put out this decree. Well, again, respect and honor is not wrong. It's not a wrong goal, but the way they're trying to achieve it is very wrong. And verse 21 says, The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, and so the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his household. Well, imagine ruling over a, a kingdom 
that was all of these different provenances and conquered nations, and they all had different languages. Now, the Greeks, when they would conquer nations, they would Hellenize them. They would try to get them all speaking the Greek language, but the Persian kings didn't do that. They actually supported each of their native languages, and that's what it says here. It was this, 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 this law, this ordinance was set out in each person's, each people's own language and in their own tongue. So Xerxes and the other Persian kings were just really good about accommodating their language. I found this kind of fascinating. This is a cliff near the Van Fortress. It was in the Persian Tory of Armenia, which is modern day Turkey. And 70 feet up on this cliff, there is a little niche chiseled into the stone. And it was and it was in this niche that Xerxes had this inscription written. It's by Xerxes himself who we're reading about. And these 27 lines explain how he had the inscription made. His father chiseled the niche, had people chiseled the niche, but left it blank, it says. But Xerxes came along and he put an inscription in it. And he's, he speaks of himself as the great king, king of kings, king of all languages, he says king of all languages, and he calls for the protection of his kingdom by the gods. And the interesting thing, it's 27 lines, and the exact same thing is chiseled in three different languages. It's in Old Persian, Elamite, and Babylonian. And so it shows how the Persian kings would communicate with the people, each in their own language, just as verse 22 describes. Isn't that kind of cool to see biblical history chiseled into a stone cliff? And there's many examples of this, of the Persian kings communicating with the people in their, in their kingdom in all of their native tongues. So, as we wrap up this first chapter, what do we take away from all this? The first thing, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of history here. Uh, but although Esther has a lot of rich, colorful content, it's historically accurate. Every word of it is true, and I've done my best, and I continue to do my best to illustrate this by showing examples of secular history and archaeology that line perfectly up with the biblical text. So it's an historical account, and it's accurate, it's reliable. Did that not come up? There we go. Secondly, God is provident, and it's going to be the ongoing theme in the book of Esther, even when we don't see or acknowledge him, he's continually working behind the scenes. And Ephesians said he works out everything in the conformity, in conformity with the purpose of his will. Think about that. Everything. Your drive home. Your day tomorrow. Your week at work this week or at school. He works out everything in conformity with his, the purpose of his will. So did God desire for Xerxes to be so arrogant? No. Did he cause him to get drunk and make a rash decision regarding Vashti? No. God doesn't cause someone to sin. But God did allow this pagan king Xerxes to rise up into power. And God will use all of these things to work out his good purpose in the chapters ahead. So God is absolutely providential 
He's orchestrating all these things we read about. The, the, the drunk men, the call, the denial, you know, the denial by Vashti to come, her being removed from power. God is using these things for the benefit of the nation of Israel. So God is provident. It's not wrong to be wealthy, but our first priority must be godliness and our response to material wealth should be humility, generosity, thankfulness, contentment. These are the, the character qualities that God wants us to cultivate. Alcohol doesn't, doesn't lead to good decision making. We know this to be true. We know to avoid the pitfalls of drunkenness and drugs. Doesn't matter what our culture thinks or does, we need to be sober minded and filled with the Holy Spirit. We need godly advisors who guide us according to the truth in God's Word. We don't want to be led astray by worldly wisdom. That, that wisdom might sound intellectual, even scientific at times, and it might appear to be wise, but if it's contrary to God's Word, it's foolhardy, it'll lead to our destruction. And God's roles for a husband and wife involve servant leadership and loving submission. There's no place for domination, male chauvinism, even feminism that desires to usurp the males, the husband's role of leadership in the home. So God has a very different model. So I'm really looking forward to what God has for us in this series in Esther. There's just a lot of history, a lot of stuff to set the stage, to lay the groundwork for what lies ahead. And I think it's going to be really timely for us. Again, as we look out at the world around us, we want to see God's good purpose in our country, in our city, in our church, and especially in our own personal lives. And we want to get on board with what God's purpose is. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm thankful that you're in control because when I look around, I don't have to be worried about the turmoil I see. I don't have to worry when I read the news. I can rest in the fact that you know all things, God. You can look ahead and you're working all things together for our good and for your glory. You're truly awesome and you're worthy, deserving of our worship. And you're deserving of our submission to you as our Lord. And so God, as we study this book over the next many weeks, I pray that you'd help us to apply this to our own lives and to our own times. Help us to see the relevance. Help us to be faithful men and women, courageous men and women who seek to understand your purpose for our lives and then with your strength who desire to live it out. And so God, we can only do this by your power working in us. And so we ask for this, we plead for this, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.